When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello and welcome to How To Money, a financial education podcast for young Australians aimed at opening up the conversation around money. In each episode, your host, Kate Campbell, brings in a variety of guests to explore everything from buying shares to starting your own business, all with the aim of kickstarting your personal finance journey. Just a quick reminder that everything we cover in this podcast is for financial education purposes only, and we are not giving you any advice. If you do want advice, please seek the help of a qualified and competent professional and do some research. Remember, it's your money, so take control. Nicole, welcome to the How To Money podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Kate. Good to talk to you. And it's been a while since we've spoken with uh, COVID getting in the way of that, but it's great to chat again. I don't think our listeners have been introduced to you, so if they haven't heard about you and your your first book, Smashed Avo, and a bit of your background. Can you give us a little crash course? Absolutely. So um, my first book, Smashed Avo, Smashed Avocado, came out in September 2019. And I basically charted my path to entering the property market, understanding that it was really difficult and, and sharing the information that I'd learned along the way. Um, and also stories from lots of different creative young people who'd found clever ways to enter the market. And I'm just about to launch my next book, The Ethical Investor. Which is very exciting because as we discussed, there's nothing out there in the Australian market. And I know a lot of my listeners are interested in values-based investing and looking at ETFs with ESG overlays and things like that. So I'm very excited to read a copy when it comes out and hopefully uh, go to the book launch, which fingers crossed we'll have in 2022. Fingers crossed we will be able to have a book launch. And I think that's exactly it. So many people want to know about this. And and to be honest, I learned while I was writing. I didn't know a lot when I got started. And um and I've I've learned so much and I'm, you know, really excited to get that information out there. And you've recently, well, not that recently, but I guess COVID years is a bit crazy. But you, during uh, last year, you actually purchased a home in regional Victoria, which is really exciting. And I think a lot of people over the last two years have had that vision at the back of their mind, like, oh, I'd love to just move to the country, either rent or buy and just sort of live that life. Now I can work remotely. What has this experience been like for you? And have there been any big surprises going from like buying in inner city Melbourne to, to selling up and going to the country? Oh my gosh, Kate, I learned so much. So to give you a bit of background, I wasn't actually planning to sell my first investment property, which I'd had for about six years, but my tenants moved out 
in the first lockdown. And that was at a time when no one really know, knew what was going on. No one was moving. I couldn't find a suitable tenant. Um, and I was very lucky to be able to get a mortgage pause due to COVID. And I put it on the market and sold it. I'd been living in a rental property in Richmond, in a city, Melbourne. And the plan had always been eventually to step up and buy a house. I wasn't expecting to do it in 2020, but um, COVID sort of forced my hand. And uh, I knew that to get into the market on a single income, I was going to have to go to a country town if I wanted to buy a house and live in it. And so I started looking around and I've ended up in uh, in a lovely little fixer-upper in Ballarat. Wonderful. And I'm, I've been watching your Instagram stories, uh, sort of detailing your, your fun and games renovating this house. It, it sounds like it's been quite an adventure. I have never renovated before. Um, My family did a renovation when I was little, but I've never physically done the (laughs) labour and I really underestimated what was going to be involved. Um, I've done a lot of the work myself, lifting floor tiles. I had some help from friends with that, lifting carpets and a lot of painting. So it's it's been a learning curve, but it's also been hugely rewarding. It seems like a good thing to do as like a COVID project. Well, it wasn't like I could go anywhere, so yeah. um, I was I was very fortunate to uh, to have something to do while I was at home. Yeah, and you've been a I guess if if listeners have um, read your your first book, Smashed Avo, and uh, learned a bit about your home buying journey, they'll know that you've actually been a, a homeowner for a number of years now, and you, you sort of detailed that in the first book, which I'd recommend listeners having a read of because it's quite an enjoyable and informational journey um, through the first home buying process. But what if, looking back now, it's been a few years, what have been some of your biggest lessons about the, the first home buying process? Oh, so many lessons. So I had I had a really small amount of money to start with. And so I thought at that time, the only option that I had was to buy an apartment. If I had my time again, I, I wish I'd bought regional six years ago. I would really have loved to have had a freestanding house on land from the get-go, but an apartment at the time was was what I thought was most suitable for me. The biggest challenge with buying an apartment for me was realising that if the property needs any work, you've got to get everyone else who owns the property to contribute to the process of getting the work done. We needed our external staircase, which led from the ground floor to the first floor, replaced. It was crumbling and it took 12 months to get finance in order, understand how we were going to structure it. Uh, You just have a lot more freedom when you have a house on land. That's not to say buying an apartment, you know, doesn't work for plenty of people if that's your way into the market, but you do have less control uh, when when you purchase something that's in a building that you essentially share with other people. So, you know, if if you're looking to enter the market, I would say have a look at all the options available to you. There are lots of ways to enter the market without necessarily living in it. So where can you afford to buy that makes sense? And I think a lot of us have probably changed our mind over the last two years thinking that we were quite happy buying and living in an apartment for the rest of our lives with one tiny balcony and now we've gone hmm, maybe we do actually want a little bit of a backyard if this ever happens again. And maybe we can't afford that quite where we are. And we have to consider a more regional area. And I think that's really, we've started to change what we think we want about our future property and even our expectations. Absolutely. I think it's a lot easier for people who can work remotely. I was really fortunate. I was working remotely prior to the pandemic, but that has opened up the opportunity to a lot more people. So, you know, if you can get out of the city, there are a lot of, you know, great opportunities out there. 
Yeah, and I think one of the other topical things at the moment, especially in uh, the newspapers, when you see the articles about young person buys million dollar house was given two hundred thousand dollar deposit. Sometimes it, a lot of the information isn't that realistic or applicable to our own lives, and a lot of young people are sort of saying, "Well, I'm never going to get into the the property market. The houses just keep rising, and I just can't save a deposit fast enough." What would be some of your suggestions for listeners who are thinking it might possibly be hopeless trying to save up for a house deposit and sort of figuring out what they could even do there if they really want to buy a property? I would say don't give up. It's a really powerful thing to do to to purchase and, and own your own property for your future security. I completely appreciate that it is incredibly difficult to enter the market. I am doing this on a single income. So what I would say is look at what you think you can feasibly afford in terms of saving a deposit in in a realistic time frame and look at what that money can buy you. I've spoken to a lot of people who have bought interstate, you know, in, in other locations because they can't afford in Sydney or Melbourne. I don't know who can afford in Sydney at all. <laughs> but, you know, it might be a case of continuing to rent where you want to live and finding a property in another state that's more affordable and using the capital growth that comes with that over time to take your next step. So it might not be an investment forever, which is what I did. I had my first investment, which fortunately went up in value over time, and I used that to take my next step. Yeah, and it it is a definitely a period of sort of realigning expectations. We we can't necessarily afford what we want and we may have to consider further out, which I think is a bit more realistic now with a lot of jobs offering remote work or flexible and maybe you only have to travel from Ballarat to Melbourne two days a week. So it makes it a little bit easier to consider a, a regional move. Mm, absolutely. I've met so many people here who've done the same thing. The 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 number of ex-Melburnians, you know, moving to Ballarat has been extraordinary. And again, I know that not everyone can do that, but you know, you, you might be able to look at potentially doing that commute even if you can get into a regional town that's sort of less than an hour and a half from from the city. Yeah. And one of my favorite parts of your your book Smash Avo was the creative ways young people and well, anyone in general really were saving up for their house deposits. And I was wondering if you could share some of those with my listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Oh gosh, I met so many interesting people. I think I think the key was people finding ways to use a very small deposit to enter the market and even creative ways to get their housing. So I spoke to a couple of people who moved houses on trucks to more affordable country land. I spoke to a couple who bought a barn and turned that into an Airbnb. You know, these are people, most people that I spoke to were purchasing with less than sort of $400,000. And then the deposit is, you know, potentially $40,000 if you're buying with 10%. If you've got first home buyers grants, there are opportunities there as well. So everyone I spoke to consistently said, what do we need in terms of the deposit to get in? So rather than being overwhelmed by the cost of the property, it's what you need to get in and service that mortgage. Yeah. And I, I think people would definitely should read the book and see those examples because there, there were some creative ways that maybe you haven't thought of because they don't really get talked about in that traditional media narrative. And one of the other things I know that you had to deal with and you've spoken about before was that changing social dynamics once you start saving up for a deposit and you start like taking your home buying process really seriously because I'm pretty sure most of us have to make some sacrifices along the way. It's, it's not easy to save 
I don't know what even is a reasonable deposit nowadays, like hundred grand for a five hundred thousand dollar property. You'd be lucky, but um, yeah, I'd I'd love if you could um talk on that point. Well, first, you don't necessarily need a hundred grand to buy a five hundred thousand dollar property. There are other ways to manage the the structure of the loan, but that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> I think it was really interesting when I started saving because I'd been spending time with people who probably weren't budgeting or planning to make a a property purchase and therefore were going out and spending money, a lot of money on the weekend. When I couldn't do that anymore, people got a bit frustrated that I wasn't coming out or I wasn't spending money. And that was really difficult and actually quite shocking for me. But I think the upside was I worked out which friends were perhaps a bit toxic in terms of the social life expectations and that holding me back for my future. So for those people who didn't come along for the ride, you know, I did lose a few people along the way. But what I gained was the people who were better with money. And I find that when you're surrounding yourself with people who do have those ambitious goals and do understand your need to save, you know, you end up with a really supportive network of people. There's a lot of power for having people around you that will support your goals and also are working towards similar goals because you can you can support each other, you can sort of pick each other up when you get off track. And um, I think that's a, a really important part of whether it's a saving for a first home journey or investing journey, having that sort of social network around you to support you. It's such an important thing. And it's really interesting, actually, since I got to Ballarat, I've met a lot of people, funnily enough, on Instagram who've become friends, fellow renovators who are really supportive. You know, I've got a friend who's dropping off a scaffold today to help me paint. You know, you get these people who, who are in that same headspace and you you know, you really come together and support each other and that's really powerful. And I know one of the big things that you've sort of pivoted towards over the last couple of years after your first home buying journey was learning more about investing and more specifically ethical investing. And was there a particular moment or a point or a thing you discovered that sort of started that new journey for you? Mm, It wasn't what I was planning. It was kind of a a perfect storm, if you will. We had just come out of the 2019-2020 bushfires and I was starting to think a lot more about the impact of climate change. At the same time, a pandemic started and I needed to sell my property and I realised that all I had was that property. And had things not played out the way that they did, I could have been in a lot of trouble. So I decided that I wanted to diversify my investments. So my my priority, of course, has, has been entering the market again and purchasing a property, but just putting small amounts of money into shares over time to make sure that I've got that little buffer there that's growing as well. And because of everything that was happening environmentally, I thought, what can I invest in that's good for the planet? Yeah. And I think this will be really interesting to listeners because so many of us have started investing in the last couple of years. And there's a lot of people that have only just started for the first time, only heard about investing for the first time during COVID. And so I think it's a a perfect time to talk about it. And uh, I'd love to hear what intrigues you the most about investing ethically or in line with your values or whatever particular term you want to use, because there's so many different ones thrown around. 
there are so many things that intrigue me. I think the the important thing to start off with is just because something is labelled ethical doesn't mean it's ethically right for you. So, you know, my values are going to be different to your values. There are so many things that you can invest in that are right for you. But really doing a deep dive into what the company is, if it's an individual share or what's in that exchange-traded fund, if that's the path that you're going down. Because I looked at a lot of portfolios that were labelled ethical and they had mining companies and the big four banks that invest heavily in fossil fuels. And, and I thought, well, that's not really that's not really ethical. No, it's not ethical to the standard that I would expect it to be. So there's a lot of research involved, but on the flip side, there are so many exciting products coming out. It just changes all the time. Writing this book, I was constantly updating it because there were, you know, there were new products, new things to invest in. And I find it really exciting because it's not like you're just dumping spare money into shares. You're investing in things that you care about and and you're literally invested in them being successful. Yeah, and that's one of the exciting things about investing more in individual companies than just ETFs is that you actually learn a lot about this company that could be doing really cool things in Australia and internationally and creating jobs, making change, real change in the community and really trying to manage its environmental impact. And I think that's a really cool way to be more involved in the world around us rather than just um, observing it from a media passive lens. Mm, absolutely. And the other thing that I would say is I think a lot of people go, okay, so ethical investment is about the environment. Uh, a lot of the time it is. But there are so many things out there, you know, sustainable food development, sustainable fashion. There are heaps of really interesting businesses out there. So if you've got a niche interest, there's every chance there's something to invest in. And going from your property investing journey to investing ethically and learning all about that, I'm sure there's some listeners that have only invested in one or the other. And were there some major sort of hurdles you had to overcome or some challenges you noticed going from one to the other? Well, I, I had literally never bought a share in my life. So it was a big learning curve. I started really small because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't want to lose large sums of money. And I also didn't have large sums of money to invest. So I looked into micro investing initially. So there are micro investing apps where you can, you know, round up spare change when you've got it or put, you know, $10 in a week or, you know, whatever, whatever the options are. And then explore how that performs and get an understanding of how it all works before you get a little bit more sophisticated and, and look into individual shares or ETFs or whatever the case is. Yeah, it's really really about immersing yourself in that world and figuring it all out as you go along. And I mean, you're going from zero to sort of knowing a whole lot about it over the last two years would have been a really interesting thing, especially during lockdown to keep you busy. Mm, actually, I remember something that, that you told uh, me because I've interviewed you in the book. So <laughs> it was probably at the start of last year. I cannot remember what I said. Are, are interested in uh, in what you have to say? Uh, they can read about it in the book. But one thing that you said to me that was really useful was to download an app where you can watch share performance and put 
particular shares on your watch list and just watch them. So you don't even necessarily have to make a purchase initially. You can watch things, see how they they perform. And I did that in the case of one of my investments. I watched it for a really long time before I invested in it. And even then, I put a very small amount of money into it because it is speculative. Um, so it's in an emerging market and I don't know how it's going to go over time. But I, you know, put a little bit of money in to see how it performs, but it took me a really long time to make that commitment. Yeah, and taking that first step is is the hardest. And um, once you once you kind of get over that hurdle, it does become a little bit easier as you go along. And I do, yeah, I do recommend like most of these apps don't charge you any sort of account keeping fees if you've got nothing in there and just downloading them, having a go. You're allowed to download and create accounts with multiple brokerage accounts, which is sometimes listeners think they can only have one brokerage account. So that's another thing to know about. And as you've gone along, you've probably come across the idea of ethically investing your superannuation as well. And that's probably something you noticed along the way because you would have had your property and your super. How did you sort of start investigating that? Because I think listeners would be really interested in that as well. It was quite funny, actually, because I have never really given much thought to my super. My mentality always was can't touch it, don't care, which in hindsight was really ignorant because I've been working for a long time and that sum of money is starting to grow. So what I did was I called the super fund that I had my money invested in and I asked them to tell me every single investment in my portfolio and they couldn't do it. I made phone calls, I sent emails, I said, I just I just want a list of all of my holdings. Like this is my this is my nest egg. Surely you can tell me where my money's invested. And it turns out it's not unusual for those major superannuation companies to not give you that information because they treat it as, you know, their sort of secret source that, you know, they don't want that information out in the world. When I started looking into ethical funds, the ethical funds that I considered listed every single shareholding in their portfolio. So I could see exactly where my money was invested and make a choice based on that. Yeah, I remember the other day um, one of my friends was in, told me she was invested in Future Super and but she didn't know much else apart from that and I was actually going through the website and like, hey, you can actually look at every single company. You they don't you probably don't know what any of them do, or even I don't because they they're all over the world, but but at least there's that level of transparency, which is important in making big decisions like where you put your superannuation for maybe 30, 40, 50 years. Absolutely. And if I think at this point in time, if your super fund isn't prepared to tell you where your money is invested, then that might well be a red flag for you. Yeah. And, and super funds have to consider risks um, that are going to affect your investments in the future, including things like the climate crisis. And I, there's been a few interesting um, cases where young people and um, even school kids have taken their super fund to court over, I don't know if you've talked about that in the book, but over their lack of management of climate risk when it comes to the super fund. Mm, I actually interviewed someone uh, for the book who said that they were looking at at taking legal action based on the way that their their fund was managed, because not only is investing in fossil fuels not great for for us it's also potentially realistically not a great long-term investment so the challenge is are those super funds going to divest which you know which means leave that particular area and invest in renewables or more effective solutions for our future because i can't see how fossil fuels will be a wise investment in 30 40 50 years time and that's something you can do you can 
as you as you tried to do, ask your super fun, what is your policy on ESG, uh, environmental social governance issues, and what are you doing about the issues we're facing, like the climate crisis, in terms of how you invest? And I think it's just the more you ask these questions, even if they don't have an answer, if they hear lots of voices calling up with similar questions, they actually start to discuss it at their investment meetings and maybe you'll start to see change that way. And that's just sort of one small way to be more involved with your super as well. I honestly believe that millennials and Gen Z are so aware of these social issues. They want to drive change. As these large numbers of people get older and have more influence, I I can't see how it won't change purely by, you know, by numbers. Yeah, and just the sheer amount of people getting involved and taking, saying this is like the number one important issue to me over the potential for me to have 1% greater returns than this fellow super fund because that's what like really the main priority from the large super funds over the last sort of few decades is just out competing their peers. The other thing I would say on that is that they're all very aware of it. They're all doing the marketing saying we care about climate, we're, we're interested in ESG. They put out you know, annual reports and the first six pages will be we care about the environment. You've got to dig below that because they're still potentially invested in things that aren't going to drive that change. Yeah, and that's probably something you've discovered along your journey, especially with exchange-traded funds, that then don't always necessarily do what you think they do underneath. And it's not until you actually look at the list of holdings and you go, hey, that's not quite what I would call ethical because they're just taking a, a filtered view or one particular person's moral approach. Yeah. And the other thing I would say on that is I've realised that I am doing my best to invest ethically. I have some ETFs that have some holdings that I'm still not thrilled with. It's very hard when you're investing in an ETF because it's a bundle of different companies that, you know, some of them are going to be great, some of them maybe not so much. If you want to be really super ethical, you know, I interviewed someone who only invests in individual companies, but that's not always feasible, especially when you're starting out. Yeah, and it's uh, like most people wouldn't recommend beginner investors just jump into individual share investing before they test the waters with other things like micro-investing and ETFs as well, because there's a lot more risks involved there and you do need to actually study that and all the processes there. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say when you're starting out, you know, don't beat yourself up because I was beating myself up because my investments weren't perfect up to my ethical standards. But starting and investing in things that are perhaps greener than other things is a great place to start. And as you as you get to know it and get to know more as you go along your investing journey, you can slowly shape your portfolio to your best version of the future rather than expecting everything to be perfect straight away because it's not always the wisest idea to just sell everything and completely change strategies uh, on a whim and it's something that requires more planning and a bit of investigation along that journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think we'll see more great products in the future as this becomes, you know, a hotter and hotter topic. Yeah, it's definitely a space you have to have to keep your eye on because there are, as you mentioned, so many new ETFs and products coming out that suit different types of ethical investors, suit different perspectives on the future as well. Absolutely. And before, I guess, a lot of this will be covered in your, your upcoming book, which is very exciting, but what would be some of your biggest learnings about ethical investing over the last few years that you want to leave my listeners with today? 
I think a really good place to start is with superannuation. You know, if you've got super, you're an investor and, you know, you just need to look at where that money is invested as a starting point. And trying to understand the structure of your super will help you understand similarly how ETFs are structured. It'll help you understand what you like and what you don't like about whatever's in your your portfolio. So just getting started with super first is a really good step. And then take it easy. Don't put too much pressure on yourself. Try micro investing. You know, you can start with, you know, a couple of dollars. So starting with those really small amounts is um, is really powerful. Wonderful. Well, I think that's some really good starting advice, especially for people who are really interested in taking the first step in that journey. And uh, I'm not sure where your book's going to be for sale when it comes out, but potentially is it going to be Dimmicks, Booktopia? Do we have a title? Yes, the book is called The Ethical Investor. Uh, it's available now for pre-order via my publisher website, blackinkbooks.com.au. It will also be available, hopefully, in all good bookstores, Booktopia, all of the places where you find books. I'm I'm hoping it will be. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> no, I'm looking forward to going to a Dimmix again. It's, it's been a too long. It's been too long. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So wandering around a bookstore is suddenly, um, you know, a really precious gift. <laughs> yeah. And especially the one at, at Collins Street, Melbourne. I don't know if um, my listeners might not all be familiar with it, but it's, you go down this escalator into like a wonderland. It's just humongous. And I think it's the biggest one we have in Victoria. It is. You can definitely get lost in there. And I think that the other thing that I would say while we're, while we're talking about booksellers is also support your independent, your local bookstore. They need your love too. Yes, absolutely. Well, I will put all of that in the show notes. So uh, listeners, depending on when you're listening, you can either pre-order or purchase Nicole's new book. And also her last one, Smash Avo, if you're interested in property, is a great journey through the whole process, including the emotions and the mistakes and the things she's learned. So I'd recommend checking that out. And thank you, Nicole, for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Kate, and thank you for being an interviewee in the book. Uh, looking forward to sharing your your uh, perspective as well. <laughs> oh, looking forward to seeing that. Thanks, Nicole. Thanks, Kate. Thank you for listening to this episode of the How To Money podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and send any questions our way via www.howtomoney.online. You can also catch us on Twitter and Instagram at howtomoneyaus and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to the How To Money Podcast.